last week, the Lord warned us that like the rich man in his story, we can easily allow our lives to be wasted in the pursuit of our pleasures while numbing ourselves to the needs of others. And this serves only to erode our own humanity. We may not be able to help everyone who comes to us, but every one of us can look outside of ourselves to see the suffering of one person and do something. The rich man, however, chose to allow his wealth to resist the power of grace that called him to reach out to that poor, sick beggar named Lazarus lying at the rich man's gate. Whenever we resist God's grace, we create nothing but chaos for ourselves and very often for others. And as we saw, it is impossible even for God to give the dignity of a name to one who, though made in the love and image of God, chose to become such a horribly distorted, defective thing. Now, for reasons I do not understand, today's reading leaves out verses 1 through 4 in the beginning of chapter 17, which followed directly on last weekend's gospel where Jesus warns that scandals in his body, the church, are inevitable. But, he says, woe to the person through whom they occur. Now, clearly, he had the apostles in mind. The warning, however, extends to all disciples to avoid causing scandal in the body, the church. And every disciple is called to hold accountable those in the church who create scandal through sin, but with the goal of restoration. And this is always risky business, because no one wants to hear that what they did was wrong. And the one who rebukes had best take care that he or she does not sin by words of anger, hatred, or poisonous words, or that smug sense of superiority. Otherwise, they become guilty of even worse sins than those of the person they're trying to correct. And if the person repents, says Jesus, forgiveness must be given as often as forgiveness is sought. And to withhold forgiveness is indefensible. It is evil. It is at this point that our reading comes in. The apostles clearly were just overwhelmed with all of Jesus' expectations of them. They knew they could not possibly meet his standards. None of us can. But that is the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because man cannot generate faith. Faith is a gift from God. 
Man, however, can exercise his will to open himself to faith, to desire faith, to enter more deeply into faith, to be guided by faith, or abandon and completely lose faith. I was raised in a tradition that said, once you got faith, you always got it. Not so. Nowhere does the Bible say that. Faith is not static, something that you get once and you got forever. No. Faith is like love. It's a dynamic gift entrusted to each of us by God to be developed or allowed to waste away. Faith is always God's initiative that, like love, waits for the depth of the human response and constantly seeks an ever deepening human response. And so the apostles understandably pleaded with the Lord, increase our faith. They knew they were helpless. And how did Jesus answer? He told them a story about what? A mustard seed. Now, why would he do that? Well, St. Augustine asked that question and gave an answer in a sermon he gave back in the fourth century. This is what he said. A mustard seed looks small. Nothing is less noteworthy to the sight, but nothing is stronger to the taste. What does that signify but the very great fervor and inner strength of faith in the church? In other words, we are most powerful as individuals and as church when we respond to the grace of faith, but we are our weakest as individuals and as church when we ignore the call to faith. Then Jesus compared his disciples then, today, and until he returns with servants who worked hard all day in the field, and when they returned to the house, they were expected to do what? Wait on their master. The true servant, in other words, understands that nothing is really his or hers, including time. We cannot take credit for what we've done, only that we responded to the grace of faith to complete the tasks set before us as best we could. Now that's hard for us to hear these days. We moderns like to think we're so special that we deserve the praise of others for whatever we do. Good Lord in schools that give gold stars if the kid breathes. That's how ridiculous it's become. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing bad about saying to someone or being told, nice job, well done, good work. But we have to be careful. Our fallen nature predisposes us to crave praise and honors, adulation, like an addict craves his drug. You ever run across people who try to manipulate you into giving them attention? Praise or compliments, it's pretty sad, isn't it? It's like a drug addict trying to get a fix. A man runs a, uh, owns and runs a small business. And one day, uh, 
A young worker just entering the workforce came up to his office and a little angry, somewhat disgruntled. And he went to his employer and he said, I'm a little upset. I haven't received any praise for showing up to work on time. And the employer said, young man, showing up to work on time is expected. It's not praiseworthy. That's your job. Now get out there and work. The young worker was stunned, crestfallen. Like so many today, he was raised with the idea that everyone's supposed to be adulation because I can tell the difference between my right hand and my left. He expected praise for something that he is supposed to do because it's expected of him. I suspect there are a lot of folks like that. Jesus instructs us to avoid the trap our fallen nature sets for us by saying, when you have done all you have been commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what we were obliged to do. Now, this is not, as some people like to think, some kind of unhealthy psychological masochism where one denies one's dignity. Quite the opposite. To acknowledge that we are servants, grace to do what we do, protects our dignity and the dignity of others from the dangers of flattery that always try to allure us into thinking that we are more important than we really are, that we are of greater worth than others, or that we are so special that if we weren't doing what we were doing or we weren't here, the whole universe would just collapse in on itself. That we are the center of the universe, and by golly, we expect to be treated as such. It is that kind of thinking that is pathological. And when the individual, when an institution, when a society, when a nation gives into that kind of thinking, it generates incredible suffering in the lives of individuals and in the lives of a country. The church is called to be a community of servants who know they are servants, dependent on the grace of God.